0: Chapel Mason City chapter 2 16 verse 23 so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels "...intruding into the things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations?" Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerns things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. God's word. Thank you. Thanks, brother.
1: Well, it seems that as long as Christianity has been around, there have always been those who try to convince others that it's just too simple. They say that something more is required than just simple faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. So Paul is writing to a church here that is being annoyed by such folks. In today's passage, he writes, Since you are complete... Through your faith in Christ, you are free from three things, and we'll see them in the text. You're free from legalism, you're free from mysticism, and you're free from asceticism. Don't worry if you know about those words. Those are a whole bunch of isms for an early Sunday morning here, but I'm going to explain them as we go, and trust me, this is a very simple passage to understand, even though these words are, you know, kind of wordy. You are free from legalism, number one. He starts in verse 16. Look what he says. So let no one judge you in food or drink. Now, when a passage starts with the word so, you look at that and you say, well, that must have something to do with the thing that went before it, right? Because he starts out in a weird way. He says, so, you know, it's like in conclusion to what I just said. Now I'm going to say this. So what did he say before? Well, in verses 8 through 15, He talked about being complete in Christ. And the subject was the same. He was talking about these false teachers that had come into the church and they said, you Colossians, you need to be circumcised. You need to be baptized. You're missing something. You've got to do works in order to be complete. And so essentially, paraphrasing last time, Paul said, you already are complete in Christ. You have been circumcised in Christ. And you've been baptized already. And he was talking about spiritually how when you put your faith in Christ, your old sinful dead nature is cut off. It's done away with, just like circumcision. And remember we talked about what circumcision, what is it? It's it's a symbol of life being cut off of your old sinful life. And Paul said last time, your old sinful life was cut off when you put your faith in Christ. Just like Christ was crucified and cut off on the cross, your old life spiritually was cut off. And baptism was a symbol of that, right? We talked about the powerful symbol of baptism, where you go under the water, symbolizing your death to the old nature, and then you come out of the water, symbolizing the fact that you're alive in Christ, and you're a new creation. I don't know about you, but this last week, who's been really blessed by the fact that we're complete in Christ? Right? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Been ministering to yourself? Wow, it's not about works. It's not about anything that I do. It's about what Jesus did, and I'm complete In him. So now he starts out this passage. He says, So it's coming out of what he just said, those things. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. Now, why would somebody judge a person in food or in drink? Here's the answer because the Colossians apparently were not adhering to dietary codes that the false teachers were saying are required. Now, didn't the Old Testament command a certain dietary code? Yes, and that's probably where these false teachers got the idea. See, they're probably taking Judaism and saying, that's great that you have faith in Christ, but you also have to do the things that the Jews did in order to be right with God. So how do we know, though, that we're not supposed to keep the Old, Ter- Old Testament dietary laws um, that are found in Leviticus? Well, it does say so in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19, You could turn there if you want in your Bible. This is incredibly important to understand that we don't keep the Old Testament dietary laws because essentially in Christ, they were fulfilled. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 says, When he called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there's nothing that enters a man from the outside that can defile him, but the things that come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to ear, let him, let him hear. And then when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, you guys don't get it yet? That's the paraphrase. Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and it's eliminated? And this is the key right here. He says, thus purifying all foods. So, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, God said, hey, Israel, here's some foods that are clean and here's some foods that are unclean. You can only eat the clean ones. You can't eat the unclean ones. But right here, Jesus is saying all foods are purified. Now, it's for another study in another day of why God gave that dietary law to the Old Testament you know, Jews, um, but it primarily had to do with separation and keeping them separate from pagan nations around them. When Christ came, all of that was fulfilled. It was done, Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. He said, it says right there, thus purifying all foods. Okay? So why would these teachers come in and judge the Colossians, saying, you're not keeping the appropriate diet? Well, they have a misunderstanding of the Old Testament dietary laws. Now going on further in our passage, it says, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Now, it's the same idea here. The false teachers were likely insisting that believers observe Jewish feasts, the new moon festival and the Sabbath, right? So what are the Jewish feasts really quick? Well, there are eight of them that stand out. Um, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, day of atonement, tabernacles, and the feast of dedication, right? And now I'm going to do about, you know, two hours on each of these and we're going to, no, I'm just kidding talk about feasts and we're having potluck after service, you start getting people like, they'll throw a chair at you. I've, you know, I've seen this. Now it goes on in verse 17 and it says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So get the context again. Paul is saying to this church, don't let anybody judge you based on food or based on these festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. Don't let anybody condemn you that you don't observe these things. Why? Because these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And I brought a picture to help us kind of understand what he means. Anybody ever make shadow puppets, right? Trying to have a sleepover, supposed to go to bed. I told you, lights out an hour ago. And you're in there going, it's a frog, it's a frog. Well, this girl is actually really good at them. I, can't, I mean, can you believe that? It looks like a, is that a parrot? Goodness gracious, she's a professional. When Paul says that these things are a shadow of the things to come but the substances of Christ, think of it like this. This is the dietary law system. This is, these are the feasts right here. Now, you can look at them and you can get a pretty good idea of what's going on, but you can't really see the full picture, right? This is the full picture, right? So you think of these things in the Old Testament sort of as clues that point towards Christ, right? And when Christ came, the full picture came. These things were just shadows in the Old Testament, and when Christ came, it's the full picture. It's like, it's like, hey, I can only see the parrot, but what's the full picture? Oh, the full picture is her hands, and you can get up close and study them, and you know she's got five fingers on each one, and you can see the substance. How is Christ the fulfillment of the shadows? Well, I'm just going to whet your appetite here with a few examples of this, because this is an incredibly fun Bible study if you want to figure out how Christ is the fulfillment of all these different things in the Old Testament. First of all, um, the feast. Let's talk about that. There's a feast called the Feast of the First Fruits. Now, that's found in Leviticus 23. It's celebrated on the Sunday after Passover. Now, this feast was a celebration of the first fruits of the barley harvest, right? So the barley harvest would be coming in, and what they would do is they would take the very first bit of that crop, and they would give it to the Lord they weren't like people today that give scraps they gave the first fruits and that's what that festival was about and so how is jesus though the fulfillment of that well jesus resurrection on the third day after his death is seen as the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead 1st corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 through 23 that's exciting here in the bible flip every time you say a different reference wow it's a good day Here's 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Right? Christ is the firstfruits. He's the first type of person to be resurrected from the dead into this new resurrected body. He's the first fruits of those that will be resurrected to eternal life. So in that sense, he's the fulfillment of the feast in the Old Testament times, thousands of years earlier, Hundreds of years earlier, he's the fulfillment of it. See, the feast in the Old Testament is the shadow. Now, Christ becoming the first fruits, the first from the dead, is the substance of the shadow, right? Here's another one. How about the shadow of the Sabbath? Now, this one's incredibly important because, man, I bet you if you surveyed everybody in here and, and said, Do you, are you supposed to worship Christ on the Sabbath, you'd probably get some confusion about the whole thing because there are those today that say, The only way to worship is on Saturday. It's got to be on the Sabbath. You ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that? It's a common thing. But again, the shadow, the Sabbath was a shadow which finds its fulfillment in Christ. What is the Sabbath? Well, in Exodus chapter 31, there's an ordinance given to Israel that simply states that they're not to do any work on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. They're not to do anything, and they're not to have their animals do anything either, You're just supposed to give everybody the day off, even your animals, right? Exodus 31, 13 says this, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, listen, For it is a a sign between me and you throughout your generations. So he's speaking to the Jews. He's saying, this is between you and me, Israel. That's what the Sabbath is about. It's a sign between Jews and God. How's Christ the fulfillment of that? Well, a bunch of different ways, but do you remember when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, all of you who labor, because you will find in him what? Rest, right? Now, the picture of the Sabbath, think this through for a second. We know that the rest that we find in the salvation of Jesus doesn't come by works, right? Right? On the Sabbath, you were supposed to rest and not do any what? Do you see the parallel? See the connection? If you try to add works to salvation in Christ, what does Paul say happens to you in Galatians? He says you're anathema. If you say it's faith in Christ plus circumcision or baptism or plus anything, he says you're accursed, you're anathema. It doesn't work like that. The rest comes by no works. Now, the same thing on the Sabbath. Guess what happened in the Old Testament if you worked on the Sabbath? What do they do to you? They stoned you to death. Why? Because the picture of the the Sabbath is so important that God wants to send a message that when my son comes thousands of years later, you better understand that salvation and rest does not come by works. That's the whole idea. You see how the Sabbath is the shadow with Christ as the fulfillment? My wife and I like to go to Minneapolis a lot, particularly Chanhassen, and when you get just close to Burnsville, you see a sign that says, Minneapolis, 12 miles or something. That sign points us towards Minneapolis. Now, if we arrive in Minneapolis, and we're all checked into the hotel, and it's going well, and I say, man, we just got to go back and look at that sign. You know, to heck with the pool. I don't want to go down. I'm not. No, let's, let's go back and look at the sign that says Minneapolis 12 miles. And that's kind of what he's saying here. He's like, why on earth would you go back and be so fascinated with all these signs that point to Christ when you can just look at Christ? It doesn't make any sense to go back and look at the shadow when you can look at the substance. No. Why is this so important to our mental health to understand that we're free from legalism? Do you know what legalism is, right? It's thinking that God is pleased through, only pleased and only will accept us through works, through things that we do. We eat the right diet, we observe Sabbath, we do the certain things, we follow the rules and then God will accept us. That's legalism. Paul's saying you're free from all that. You're complete in Christ just through your faith and trust in Christ. Why is it so important to our mental health to know that we're free from legalism? Let me give you a few reasons. Being free from legalism actually allows you to have a relationship with God, right? If you think of God as a soda machine that if you put in the right combination of money and pushing buttons, doing the right works, and then he'll spit out the can of salvation for you, if you think of God as a mechanical machine that you just push his button through your works, you don't have a personal relationship with God. And you know, it's tragic to to run into Christians that don't have a personal relationship with a personal God. That's tragic when they see him as just a code of rules and nothing else. You're lacking intimacy with God. Now, so that's one benefit of being free from legalism. You can have a personal relationship with God. Another one is, is you can find peace with God, which delivers you from anxiety, Right? Number one thing people are going in to see counselors for today is for anxiety, right? And then there's other people that are turning to the bottle about it, and other people that are turning to, you know, illicit relationships, trying to deal with it, and doing all kinds of different stuff. But you can actually have peace with God, which will free you from anxiety. What do I mean? If I know, without a doubt, that I am right with the Creator. Think about that for a second. What? could possibly be all that stressful in the context of thinking that. Now, I'm not saying life isn't hard and all that, but I know that I am at peace with him because of what he did, not with what I do, right? Now, that's a tremendous cause of anxiety, always looking at my work saying, I wonder if I've done enough works. I wonder if I've done this whole Christianity thing, right, because, you know, then I'm looking at myself. So a benefit of being delivered from legalism is you have this peace that comes by knowing that you're rightly related to God based on what he did, not based on what you do. That's, that brings peace. That's better than any medicine, right? If you really get that into your heart, really trust that, I'm right with him because of what he did. Now, it also delivers you from a sense of guilt and shame. Christians that are trapped in legalism are always going around either doing one or two things. On one hand, they're either feeling guilty and shameful all the time because they say, I don't live up to God's standard. I don't live up to God's standard. That's on one hand. Now, on the other hand, if you're not doing that, then you become arrogant. You say, I'm doing a great job of living up to God's standard and probably better than all of you by the looks of you people, you know. And that's what a legalist does, is either on one side, when they're doing well, they, you know, they feel better than everybody else, and when they're doing poorly, then they feel terrible and shameful, and they're constantly, it's like yo-yo Christianity, up and down all the time. Understanding that your relationship with God is based on the solid rock of what Christ did, it takes you out of that yo-yo Christianity, Right? Now, if you're delivered from the arrogance that comes from legalism, that also improves your relationships, right? Because arrogance puts you in this position where nobody wants to hang out with you, which can lead to loneliness, which is about the number two thing that people go seek counselors for. I'm lonely. Well, it's just, I'm trying to be nice here, but maybe is it because you're arrogant? You know, I don't know. You know, Could be. So understanding that your relationship with God is based on Christ and not based on you, it keeps you from guilt and shame, and it also keeps you from arrogance, I only have about 15 more here. I'm just joking again. (laughs) Oh, how this ministers to our anxiety, guilt, shame, fear, pride, loneliness, and insecurities, the wonderful grace of God. Number two, you are free from mysticism. I'll admit right up front, this is kind of a... Commentators are sort of all over on what he talks about here, so I'm going to give you my best interpretation. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, so Paul, again, warning them. The first thing was a warning against legalism. Now he's saying, let no one cheat you of your reward. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about being robbed of heavenly rewards. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that if anyone builds their life upon Christ as a foundation all the things they do built on that true foundation of Christ, they will be rewarded for in heaven. Right? That's actually the motivation of a lot of Christians that are serving is we're saying things like, look, we're, we're storing treasure in heaven. you know, And the Bible says that's a legit thing. If I build on Christ, on the foundation of Christ, God's going to reward me for that. But it also says in that same passage, if you build on anything else, your works and everything you do will be burnt up at the judgment, although you'll be saved, but you'll kind of look back at your life and go, man, that was a waste. I had this big opportunity to do a bunch of things for Christ, but I ended up doing things, you know, that weren't based on Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Let no one cheat you of your reward. If the false teachers can come in and convince you to be a legalist or a mystic or an ascetic... You move away from the foundation of trusting Christ alone. Now, all of a sudden, you're not building on the foundation of Christ anymore. And you're in the, you know, you could lose your rewards in heaven at that point because you're not building on Christ. Simple to understand, right? I told you it was simple to understand. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. Now, the Colossian heresy involved the worship of angels in some way or another. And you remember I gave you the illustration of a Russian nesting doll, right? You know what a Russian nesting doll is? You got the bigger one, and you take the head off, and you take the head off, and then you go all the way down. And that's how they viewed, like, spirituality and God. Like, God was way out here, and then there were all these layers of different, like, angelic beings that you had to, like, go through to learn maybe something about the true God. And so this is what... You know, where he says the worship of angels, what this likely looked like was them saying things like this We don't dare approach God, we go through mediators. You know, you may have heard people that do that today. They say, We would not dare pray directly to God, but we will go to mediators. We'll pray to saints, we'll pray to Mary. Because, oh my gosh, we're far too lowly to approach God himself. I think that's the idea that he's getting to here in some way or another. And and he calls it false humility. It looks incredibly humble to say that I won't go directly to God, but I'll go through an angel or a saint or something like that. But Paul calls it false humility. He goes on to say, "...intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind." This has the idea where it says intruding into things which he has not seen. Scholars think what he's talking about here is this Gnostic sort of heresy said Christ, faith in Christ is too simple. You need to have visions that sort of initiate you into the things of God. And you might get one from this place or this medium or from this experience, but you need visions. You need supernatural experiences, right? Right. And where he says, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, he exposes what's really happening. In all their talk of visions, it's nothing more than vanity, human pride seeking attention. He's puffed up in his fleshly mind. Just to get the context, Paul's saying, don't get into this stuff. Don't get robbed of your reward by buying into this whole worship of angels seeking after spiritual-looking experiences, don't get duped by that. You don't, you don't need that stuff. All you need to be pleasing to God is faith and simple trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says that these false teachers are not holding fast to the head. Is that capitalized in your Bible? Head? Head? The false teachers are not holding fast to Jesus. Now, if they were, they wouldn't be teaching this false doctrine. Holding fast to the head is illustrated by Jesus in John fifteen five, where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. These false teachers, although they're claiming to have like Christianity plus are actually not holding to the head at all, is what he's saying. He gives this word picture here, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments. Talking about like the human body, right? Being joined and knit together, like your arm is next to your torso, but it's connected to your torso through joints and ligaments. And he's saying the body of Christ is like that. The body of Christ, all of us are different members and we're here connected, sitting under him as the head. And then it goes on to say, which grows with the increase that is from God. The idea here is he's saying these false teachers are not joined and knit and connected to the body of Christ. They're not situated underneath Jesus as the authority, as the source. And so he's saying, stay away from these guys. They're not connected to the body of Christ. Now this brought up an interesting point. As I'm thinking through this, I'm thinking these these guys had to have bought, bought into this false teaching somehow, right? And maybe it came into their lives because they weren't joined and knit to the body of Christ, right? When I run into somebody that's bit off some false teaching, it's those people that are not solid in church. They're not connected to the body of Christ. And so they might say stuff like, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And then I will tell them and say, well, you are the church. The question is, is like, what kind of a church member are you? Are you like this guy? I was reading this story about him. He was working at the sawmill and the end of the day was coming and he was kind of tired and it was already quitting time. And he said, let me just do one more. And he ended up losing Two fingers, one of them all, almost, you know, and it's like one's gone completely in the pod, in the pile of sawdust, and the other one's got just tendons just dangling, and he's in shock looking at it, going, ah, ah, you know, and I mean, that's the state of Christians that don't, you know, say, they say stuff like that. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, you're not being nourished and built up. And there's no life coming in and out of you, you know, other than through this little tendon. You know, you're supposed to be connected to the body of Christ. So glad my body stays connected. You know, as I get older, sometimes I wake up and like part of my body wants to stay at home. (laughs) You know, you ever had that happen? So... Paul says, don't, get, don't lose your reward by getting into this mystic sort of Christianity where it's like faith in Jesus isn't enough. You need experiences and visions and um, you know, we need to worship angels and all these other you know, sort of supernatural sounding things. What, are some, what does mysticism look like today? I want to try to connect this to our modern day world. A little bit. One thing it looks like is the New Age movement. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with New Age. There used to be a store right next door that was a New Age store, healing hands and more. You can go in there and, you know, get some, they'll put rocks on your forehead and stuff like that, and they believe in energy crystals and all this stuff. And, you know, and I Personal experience with the New Age movement, I was very interested in this stuff before I became a Christian, and I had a lot of New Age friends that had mixed Buddhism and Hinduism and all these other different types of things. And I'm going to tell you the truth from my own testimony, from being around these sort of people, is that way of thinking is a heavy, heavy bondage, right? And those were the most non-well-adjusted, anxious, angry people that I ever met in my life. And here's what I mean. Because the new age movement is set up about attaining something. You're trying to get to a certain place. You're trying to reach something. You're trying to meditate long enough until you can have a breakthrough or quiet your mind. You know, have you ever tried to make your mind completely blank? How do you do that? Like picture blankness. It's not blank then because I'm picturing blank it doesn't work. I, I mean, this stuff is an incredible bondage. And I'll tell you, I was around people that were evangelists for this stuff and none of them ever had objective, straight answers of what any of this stuff meant, right? And it was a heavy bondage because you never have any security. Be- you never get it figured out, and you can never get there. And once you've mastered your vegan diet, you've, re- you've re- figured out how to, like, balance all your chakras, and all this stuff happens, and you're sitting there, and you're totally zenned out and blissed out, and some, you know, the UPS comes to the door, oh, and it's all ruined, you know? It's an incredible bondage, right? If you had any experience with it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Another way that this modern-day mysticism and Gnosticism Uh, looks today is in the hyper-charismatic movement. Now, I always debate about whether to talk about this stuff, you know, but there's a command in the Bible that says that pastors are supposed to expose these kind of things, and I wrestle with that because, you know, woe to the guy that loves to expose this stuff, right? I don't think that's healthy either, but in the the hyper-charismatic circles today, there's a particular church movement that's teaching people that Real Christianity looks like everywhere you go, you pray for people, they get healed all the time. There's always miracles happening. You're always coming to church with some vision. You had a dream last night that you can tell everybody about. That stuff's an incredible bondage too, because I start showing up in that environment and I, you know, and I don't, maybe I don't speak with tongues, you know, but next thing you know, I'm forced to start trying to fake it, you know? And there are testimonies after testimonies of people that fake these things because they're feeling the pressure of the group environment because the bar is set so high on the miraculous, right? But let me take some pressure off of you. That's not New Testament Christianity. The miracles that happened in the New Testament were miraculous. They were spectacular. They weren't everyday occurrences, no matter what people try to say. I don't have to feel like I'm doing something wrong because everywhere I go and lay hands on people, they don't get out of wheelchairs, right? And I don't have to feel like I'm doing something wrong, like I don't have enough faith because I can't just proclaim a million dollars in my bank account and it shows up, right? That stuff's incredible bondage. And what Paul would say is these people are just puffed up in their mind. They're vainly puffed up. These visions, all this stuff. Now, on the other hand, don't let, me, don't let me give the impression that the supernatural is not a legitimate thing and, and we should desire the spiritual gifts and, and things like that. I'm just saying that that's, we don't worship the gifts. We worship Jesus, right? So the health and wealth, the hyper-charismatic, the New Age stuff, that's, that all kind of fits into this sort of mystic category. Hallelujah that we're delivered from this, right? Because you you're not in this performance Christianity all the time where, you know, We've come off the treadmill of trying to attain something. I'm not climbing the ladder trying to get something. I'm a broken sinner in a hole that Jesus came from and adopted into his family. Praise the Lord. In Christ you're free from legalism, mysticism, finally asceticism. First off, what is asceticism? Asceticism involves giving up worldly pleasures and comforts in an attempt to become more spiritual. It could include fasting, celibacy, self-discipline, and it's often performed in, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different religious communities that perform it. The aim is to gain spiritual understanding, self-control, and closer union with God through these things. It's kind of like a bedfellow of legalism, right? Because if legalism is all about following rules, and then I look at myself and say, I've got a really hard time following rules, maybe what I should do is I should beat my body, Right? Martin Luther was stuck in that trap, if you know anything about his history. Verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? And I think that the tone there would be like, why in the world? Therefore, if you died with Christ, okay, all Christians, true Christians, have died with Christ. Now, you might be really confused about that because you're like, I'm sitting here, and I'm, I mean, I think I'm alive, you know? Spiritually, when you were born, you were born into the sins of Adam and Eve. You inherited their nature, Adam's nature. More precisely, you inherited Adam's nature from the Garden of Eden. Remember, God said to him, you eat of this fruit, and this day you'll surely die. And they said, don't call me Shirley. I don't, get, don't even listen to that. So you're born into this sinful Adamic nature, and you carry that throughout your whole life. And when Christ comes to your life, and you trust him and you give your life to him, spiritually, Christ's death on the cross where he was cut off is applied then to you spiritually, that old Adamic nature. Think of this, Christ dying on the cross, my old sinful Adamic nature dying at that time. That's how you connect those two things. So when Paul says, it's no longer I that live, it's Christ that lives in me, that's what he means. He means this old sinful nature. In other words, let's put it really simply, my life before Christ is gone, right? Therefore, Paul says, if you've died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, we talked about that last time, what are the basic principles? It's legalism. It's dealing with God in this mechanical cause and effect sort of button-pushing way. If you've died to the realm of, you know, cause and effect and laws and all this stuff, you're dead in Christ, you're dead, in Christ, you're dead to the law, why are you still living under the law? Let me explain what I mean. If a criminal goes out and breaks a hundred laws in a day and then at the end of that day dies in a car accident, how many of those laws are binding on that criminal? None of them. That's the way you have to understand the Old Testament, all the rules, the regulations of the Old Testament. When he says you've died in Christ, you're like that criminal That went out all day long, all life long. You lied, cheated, stolen, coveted. You did all those things all the time and you racked up this huge thing. But now you're dead to all that. And so, how many of those laws are binding on you? So, you understand the point? So, he talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. I don't live in that system anymore. if you're saying, does it not matter what we do with our lives? I really hope you're saying that right now, because that means I'm communicating the grace of the Lord to you, because that's another, that's another conversation, what we do. He says, why do you submit to this stuff? Verse 21, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. These things all, which concern all things that perish with the using. The do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. That's the essence of legalism. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. He said, "Why are you involved with these rules about food? Food perishes. You, you eat it; it goes to your stomach. It comes out the other end. Why are you troubled with this stuff? If you're a new creation in Christ, why are you living like you have not become new? Why are you still living under these rules and regulations? Right. These rules and regulations are according to the doctrines and commandments, commandments and doctrines of men. It says, verse 22." It makes you think of Lent today, right? Where people will go through this season of Lent, where they will make this visual display about how they're fasting, and and you know, and it culminates. Don't you get this ash on your forehead? You know, and, and you're you're showing these symbols, you know, and those things. I'm pretty sure they started out with the right heart. Lent was a time of reflection. It was a time of, um, you know, just a time of reflection and and putting God first, you know. But it's become a thing where people think. I have to do this to buy favor with God, you know? Why do you submit yourself to these things? He says, verse 23, these things indeed have the appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. These things, these strict codes, Claiming they're humble, the self-abasement, adhering to special diets, observing the Sabbaths. It all has an appearance of wisdom and it looks very spiritual, but it doesn't do anything for the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, you can fast, observe religious holidays, you can go to church, you can read the Bible, you can do all of these different things in a legalistic sort of way. That's not what changes you what changes you is Jesus. You need a real personal relationship with Jesus to change who you are, right? I can't change myself. I can go out and fast for a month and that may have some incredible physical benefits. Um, it might help me to focus more on God, but it doesn't get into the part of my being that actually makes changes, Now, there are a lot of Christians that are confused about that. In fact, Martin Luther was one of them. If you guys know who Martin Luther is, not Martin Luther King Jr. Day the other day, but Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, Lutheran Church. He struggled with the concept of righteousness and how to attain it. And he became so obsessed with the idea that he was this sinner that could never get right with God, uh, that God would never accept him, no matter how hard he tried. Um, that he engaged in all kinds of extreme self-denial. He was into uh, punishment, like self-punishment. He'd whip himself. He'd sleep in the snow. He'd sleep on beds of nails. He'd go out and sleep, or he'd put on like sackcloth and wear it to make himself purposely uncomfortable. And he tried to beat himself like with this aesthetic sort of lifestyle. Like, you know, the only way to get holier and to please God is by, um, you know, keeping his laws, but I can't keep his laws. So what I should do is I should beat myself into submission so I can keep his laws, right? Right. These practices at the time were consistent with the Catholic Church's view of righteousness, Um, but Luther came to the realization that righteousness is not attained by human works, but by faith in Christ. And man, you read his commentary on the book of Galatians, and you're just like, this dude found freedom in Christ. Um, That you're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of your works. You're free from all that. You're free from codes and rules and regulations. This stuff has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, this isn't how you change yourself. Now, this might be incredibly helpful for some of you today. If you've been struggling with sin, um, like maybe some of the same sin over and over again, and you've been trying to change yourself, and you're like, okay, I'm going to stop being angry. I'm going to put a rubber band on my wrist, and every time I'm angry, I'm going to snap that sucker, and then I'm not going to be angry eventually, you know? And uh, and then what you're finding is now you're just getting angry because that hurts. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) You can't change yourself. This might be an incredible relief to you today. You can't change yourself. Now, you can make improvements in your habits and you can can sort of whip your flesh into shape, but it's not God's plan to rehab and, and, and form your flesh. It's his plan that he put a new life inside of you. He kills off the flesh on the cross and puts a new life in you, and that new life is changing you from the inside out. And so you get into this conflict. You say, oh, I want to be a better person. I need to make a list of 10 things I'm going to change about my life today. And, and then, but here's the conflict that happens for a Christian. is Maybe Jesus has a pace that he's working on those things in you. Maybe he's not dealing with the things. Maybe you and your own fleshly mind are saying, I got to fix this. I got to fix this. And maybe Jesus is saying, hey, I got a different plan. Uh, you know, so why don't you just trust me, draw near to me, abide in me, love me, and I'll do it. Right? That takes so much pressure off. It really does. You're free from legalism, mysticism, asceticism. Praise the Lord. Now, three conclusions here. Did you know that it's possible to become legalistic about good things? Right? You can certainly do that about your prayer life, about your Bible reading life, about your giving, about your church attendance. If in your heart, the reason you're giving, attending church, reading the Bible, serving, doing these things, if in your heart you have to do those things, have to, in order for God to accept you, you're looking at God through a lens of legalism. Right? If you're doing those very same things because you are grateful for what Jesus has done for you, you're doing the things with the right heart. Right? There is a... Huge difference between legalism and obedience. Huge difference between legalism and obedience. I want to be obedient to Jesus for many reasons, okay? I trust his wisdom. God's smarter than I am. So he's got the better plan than I do. I love him because he died on the cross for me. The Bible says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us and we love him because he first loved us. I love him because of what he's done for me. I love him because he has shown his character to me through his kindness that he's shown to me. When I deserve to just be smashed, he's given me grace through people and through situations. He hasn't thrown me away when I've deserved to be thrown away, right? And so there's all kinds of reasons I love him and want to obey him. But nowhere on the list of the reasons I obey him is because I think I'm earning his love, or his acceptance, right? He loves me because he loves me. He loves you because he loves you. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. <laughs> simple. That's one of the conclusions. Be careful about your daily habits for Christ and assess your motives, you know. I'm gonna say this, and, and some, some people might squirm, but Jesus kind of did all the work and it's like he presented himself very vulnerable to you and as he hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Here I am. And he gives himself. Now, some people look at that and say, I'm undone. I give my life to you. And other people can have different reactions to that. But Christianity at its very core is about what God has done for you, what God has done for a sinner. What God in his mercy has done for someone that deserves nothing but death and hell. That's what Christianity is about. What Jesus has done for you, for me, when all we deserve is eternal separation from him. Now, anything that comes after that should be motivated by that. Here's another conclusion. Why is legalism so appealing to people? Well, this world can seem very chaotic, right? And you don't have a lot of things that you can control in this world when when you think about it. And there are people that really need a sense of control. And legalism will provide that. If I start to get uneasy about my faith, I can point to my 10 commandments that I follow. And if I am keeping about 80% of them, you know, I'm pretty good that I think I'm going to go to heaven. Legalism gives you an element of control because it's based on you. It's not based on faith in Christ. It's based on you. So it takes a person that's fearful and gives them something that they think they can manage and control. Aestheticism, these things, mysticism are appealing because it looks like some people, wow, they've got a really deep thing going on over there. I want to get involved with that. It's appealing to the flesh. Last thing, why trusting God is better, trusting And God's grace given in Jesus is better because it offers true forgiveness, salvation, rather than relying on our own works or efforts. The grace is unconditionally and freely given, providing a deeper sense of peace and security in our relationship with God. Additionally, it allows us to live in freedom rather than being bound by legalistic and aesthetic practices. If you want some real help with this, this week, recognize that your righteousness comes from Christ. Like Meditate on this. Get this into your heart. My righteousness comes from Christ, not the things that I do. And just get that in there. Trust in God's grace and forgiveness, not in your ability to follow rules or regulations. Cultivate a heart of gratitude and thankfulness towards God. Instead of focusing on earning his favor through self-denial or rule keeping, focus on his grace and his love. Can you imagine a dad that just loves his kid, and the kid only comes to him because he's useful? Rather than because he loves him, just come to God because you love him. So grateful to Jesus. He's done everything to bring us into the perfect relationship with God. You can't improve upon that. There's nothing you can do to improve upon your standing with God through Jesus Christ. You can't improve it. You can't diminish it. You can't improve it. If you're saved here today, you can't make it any better and you can't make it any worse. There's no work that you can do to make God love you or accept you more than he has in Christ. I think that hymn writer had that in mind when they said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.